Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Good to be with you today and uh, continue our study, or really a series, uh, as much as we can do a series, uh, from Ecclesiastes, and we're in chapter 6, as George just read to you the passage. We'll go through uh, those 12 verses today, but you might want to find your way there. Of course, life has been different for all of us, hasn't it? And uh, for Grace Life Ministries, it meant the cancellation of my whole spring schedule of speaking in different churches and uh, four international trips. I barely got home from the Philippines in time. I thought maybe I'd get locked out of the country in February, but made it back just in time. And, and then everything just went poof, you know. Uh, but my wife's honeydew list grew a lot shorter in the last eight months. And uh, we've, there, there's things that we've enjoyed about it. Um, drop in and check our new our website, which has kind of been redesigned, make it a little more user-friendly, uh, gracelife.org. And we've started a podcast. Uh, uh, since I'm at home, I said, well, we're not going to just sit here. We're going to do some things. We started a podcast. We've got a lot of uh, podcasts uploaded and many more coming down the pipe line. And uh, you might enjoy looking at that. Uh, I finished and published a new book called Fishing for Life. George is in here, by the way. Look for him in the chapter on Florida. And uh, they're just stories about, I love to fish. So they're just stories, you know, do, do something you love to do and love to fish. I love to tell people the stories and write about them. And then, but I draw spiritual insights from them uh, and present the gospel eventually at the end of the book. Because there's 55 million people who fish in the United States. And I could not find one book that was designed to bring them to Christ. There are books written by Christians to Christian fishermen and women, but none that are designed to bring them to Christ. So I said, well, I'll do that because I like fishing. I like bringing people to Christ. And, you know, people have been reading this and even women who don't fish say, well, I was going to give it to my husband, but I read it. I really like it. (laughs) They like the stories. It starts when I was a child and just tells it's really autobiographical. Grab one of the newsletters to find out what we're doing and what we're going to be doing, uh, Lord willing, in the future. And uh, we have a new one coming out soon, so we're happy to send that to you, too. Someone's asked about the price of the books. Just put whatever you can down. I can't make change so today uh, and mind the table. So just put down something. We ship them for $9 if you want a point of reference. Um, but you don't need to give that much. Just uh, You don't have to give anything. If you want, just walk away with it, and nobody will know. We'll put it in an envelope and send it. Well, today we're going to talk from Ecclesiastes chapter 6 about learning to enjoy life because it becomes obvious to us all that there are many people in this world who are just miserable. They're miserable. I think it was Carl Jung who said, I'm not sure if I'm remembering this right, but he said, most people live a life of quiet desperation. Inwardly, they've not, they do not have peace in their feeling miserable. And some of the most miserable people in life are those who have wealth, as we just talked about in our last hour, uh, have power, have popularity, have many things. Think about the wealthy, popular people who have committed suicide or died from drug overdoses searching for some uh, resolution to their misery. They can't enjoy what they have because they're thinking about what they don't have, perhaps. Maybe you also have a desire for something you don't have, and it has created an envy, 
uh, towards others because you do not have that and it is stealing your happiness in life. Or you might just ask yourself the question this morning, what would it take to make me happy? Or if I asked you today, what would it take to make you happy in life today? What would you say? I think we'd get all different kinds of answers. A new relationship, a repaired relationship, thing, a possession, a bank account, something different for everybody. But what would it take to make you happy? Are you enjoying life the way you think God intended you to enjoy life? Or are you just a little bit miserable yourself? So Solomon makes an observation about life here. And um, as, as we said, Solomon, a wealthy king, is looking back on his life, reflecting on the mysteries and the things he does not understand from a human perspective. It's called under the sun. He uses that phrase over and over again. And the other phrase he uses over and over again is this word vanity, sometimes translated meaninglessness, the futility of the things that he sees that just don't make sense. And so, as we said before, Ecclesiastes asks a lot of the questions that really are answered by the rest of the Bible. And in, in as poetic as a part of wisdom literature and poetry, Ecclesiastes is expressing these mysteries out loud in a, in a uh, uh, sometimes poetical way, an illustrative way, as he thinks about uh, life and here in chapter 6, the enjoyment of life. And the passage, we're going to break it into two parts. Some people just don't enjoy life. We'll explore that thought. And then we can learn to enjoy life. So let's talk about this first part of the book. Beginning in verse 1, um, it's very common among people that many do not enjoy life. In fact, Solomon, as he looked around, said this, there's an evil of which I've seen under the sun, that human perspective, and it is common among men. If people were enjoying life so much, they wouldn't be rioting in the streets and complaining so much and um, complaint boxes and, and um, social media would be filled with positive, uplifting things, but that's not always what we see. He talks about a man whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that he lacks nothing for himself of all he desires, yet God does not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner comes and consumes it. This is vanity and an even evil affliction. So this problem, he says, is common. Literally, the word uh, is translated, and, and I think the NIV gets it right here, although that's not what I'm preaching from, weighs heavily upon men. This problem weighs heavily upon men that, that people who are doing very well in life physically and financially are not enjoying life at all. It's a cruel irony because God has given them this wealth, he reminds us in verse 2, but God has not given them the ability to enjoy it because of their circumstances that I, I think that they have allowed. It's not just that God has cursed them, but I think there's always a collusion of our will with God's will, and God has let them live according to their will, so they don't enjoy it. Uh, in fact, a foreigner consumes it instead. The foreigner, we might substitute the word stranger to help us understand what he's talking about. Somebody outside our normal circle of acquaintances or friends, a stranger to us, uh, here called a foreigner, instead enjoys the wealth because God has not given the ability to that person. And again, he calls this a vanity, something he doesn't understand, something that mean, seems meaningless and an evil affliction. So how many people are really happy with their lives? 
How many people are really happy with their wealth or with their looks or with their job or with their health or with your home or your car or your recognition that you received or the position that you have or the relationships that you have? I think we would all agree that there is room for some dissatisfaction and unhappiness in all of us in some of those areas. But some people are just soured in all of those areas altogether. So their whole outlook on life is stained in negativity. So God gives us everything to joy, but he doesn't allow some to enjoy it. And for many, life is just futile. I don't think God is being a sadist here. He blesses us with good things, but in his sovereign circumstances, uh, things have worked against their enjoyment and circumstances have gotten the better of some people so that they see things through their circumstances, instead of through God. I think that's the point here. And so instead, bad people, I think that's implied by the idea of a foreigner or a stranger, is that someone who's bad enjoys it instead. And that just doesn't make sense to King Solomon as he reflects back. But that's what he sees in the world around us. And certainly we see many, many miserable people in this world who just can't seem to enjoy their popularity or fame or their wealth. Uh, it's not enough. They want more. They want more attention. They want more recognition. Um, they want um, uh, different things in life that think, they think will make them happy. And then he goes on to say something that I think that really comes across, and I was listening again as George read it, but it just sounds so dark to say this. But let's try to understand what what Solomon is trying to say to us. And basically he's saying it's better never to have been born for some, at least from the human perspective. Remember if a man begets a hundred children and the women say, wait a minute, not by me. <laughs> that must've been a super wife. No, I think this is talking about if a man has a hundred progeny because the word beget cannot necessarily mean direct children, but descendants. So we're talking about children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. If a man has even a hundred immediate family and lives many years, so the days of his life are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness, or indeed he has no burial, I take it mean, to mean he has no honor, an honorable burial. Um, it's a lone, there's a loneliness, there's an emptiness to his death. I say that a stillborn child is better than he. A stillborn child, a child that never breathes, that never sees the sun, that comes into this world without knowledge of anything, is better off than a man who has lived a long, long life with hundreds of progeny. Now, how can a stillborn child be better off? Well, he goes on. He says, this child comes in vanity and into a world of emptiness and meaninglessness, and he departs in darkness, never having seen the light of the sun. His name is covered with darkness. If he even had one, he never had it. Maybe was not named. You know, some, some cultures in some countries where health is very poor, wait until a year before they name their child because they want to make sure their child lives. And so they wait a whole year to name their child. Well, this child may have a name, but uh, no one will know the name and he'll certainly not have a rep reputation of any kind. Um, or, any kind of life experience. And though it has not seen the sun or known anything, this has more rest than that man. 
And even if he lives a thousand years twice, 2,000 years for you math majors, sir, but has not seen goodness, do not all go to one place. Um, by the way, when he says not, do not all go to one place, other, some cults have uh, taken this to mean that there's, uh, uh, there's no heaven or hell, or some have said that there's an annihilation of both the saved and the unsaved. They all go to one place. But King Solomon is not teaching theology and eschatology here. He's just looking at life as he sees it, and he says, we all die. That's what he's saying. Simply that. Don't make too much of it. We all die. We all go to one place. We all go six feet under in someday. And that's simply what Solomon is trying to say. So this child that is stillborn and knows nothing and sees nothing, at least he has rest. At least he has rest. He's not had a chance to become miserable. That sounds like a plus, doesn't it? And so looking at it from the point of, uh, from Solomon's perspective and the human perspective, this child has never experienced the misery that, this, that he sees in others around the world. A blissful ignorance. And the child avoids the pain of emptiness, of futility, of desperation. And just like the man, the baby, they both die, they both go to the grave. And if he were to live 2,000 years, it would just be 2,000 more years of sorrow. So what benefit does he really have over a child that is stillborn? So it's a dark-sounding passage, isn't it? But it, it really does make sense of what Solomon is trying to say here to us, that life without God can be a very futile experience, and maybe it's better not to have been born at all. Some people come to that conclusion and commit suicide, unfortunately. Well, he goes on to talk about uh, being content with what we have in life in verses 7 through 9. And um, we can learn to enjoy life. We don't have to be miserable. Uh, we can learn to be content with what we have. He goes on in verse 7. All the labor of men is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. Um, man works to satisfy his defeat, his mouth. That's just a, a figure of speech to, to provide for his needs. And he uses the word soul here, which is the word, the Hebrew word nephesh, which means life itself. And, and his life, his soul, is never satisfied. Because if you're only working to meet your physical needs, there's an emptiness to that. There's nothing more than that. You get up, you go to work, uh, you get a paycheck, you buy your food, you get up, you go to work. It's just, a, it's just an endless cycle of futility that he talked about earlier in the book as well. For what more has the wise man than the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to walk before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. If both the poor and the rich man are dissatisfied, then neither is better off. If neither is content, then both lives are futile, whether you're poor or whether you're rich. And verse 9 is trying to tell us that it's better to deal with real life than it is to live in a fantasy world. Better in the sight of the eyes is the sight of the eyes of what you see dealing with reality than the wandering of desire, than living in wishful thinking, I think we might say. So it's better to learn to live contentedly in our present circumstances than to always be wanting or wishing for something else. And that would just be a vanity and grasping for the wind to live in a fantasy world. You've heard of Jim Elliott, the 
well-known missionary who was martyred in Ecuador, his wife also becoming a well-known author, Elizabeth Elliot, he once wrote to her, let not our longing slave the appetite for our living. We accept and thank God for what is given, not allowing what is not given to spoil it. I love reading Jim Elliot. He always makes, he always says wise things like that. Don't let what we don't have spoil the enjoyment of what we have. And that's what Solomon is also trying to communicate to us. Don't live in a dream world. Deal with reality. Enjoy the Big Mac if you can't afford the lobster. Don't be miserable because you can't afford lobster. Just be thankful that you can buy a Big Mac, I think. Enjoy the friends that you have, the children that you have, the family that you have around us, or maybe the children that you never had. Learn to enjoy your marriage, your job. Look at them as gifts from God. These circumstances he has allowed. He's in control of these things. Don't keep looking for something better. Live for today. Don't live in a fantasy future. Death is coming to us all. So learn to enjoy life. Go for a ride, a Sunday afternoon ride with no destination in mind. See where you end up. Go to a ball game. Wear your mask. Get a second cup of coffee in the morning or a second scoop of ice cream. Enjoy the moment. Don't always wish for something more and something better and be distracted from the blessings that God has for us today. We can enjoy life, and we, but we've got to let God be God, I think is what he's saying in verses 10 and 12. And uh, the way he says it, as a little bit obscure to us, Whatever one is, he has been named already, for it is known that he is a man. Now, what is he saying here? I think what he's saying is that God, in his sovereign authority, has created us. He's named us. He's already known us. He knows all things about us. There's that side of sovereignty. Yes, he gives us free will, but there is his sovereignty that brings us into this world. And he knows our name, our character, our characteristics, our, our nature before we're even born because he knows everything. And um, in the scriptures, anybody who gives a name to something is always the one who is sovereign over it. So when Adam named the animals, that wasn't just a pleasant exercise in naming pets or something. It was, it was a way of the scripture showing us that Adam had dominion over the animals and was exerting his sovereign authority that God had given to him that he lost later. But God had given him this sovereign authority to name the animals. It was showing his sovereignty. And so God has sovereignty over us and has decreed in the nature, uh, our nature and the essence of everything around us. We could say that God has stacked the deck and he's the dealer. And so looking at things from God's perspective, things are sovereignly determined. And God never says, oops, I made a mistake. You ever hear God say, oops, let me know. God never panics and wonders if he did the right thing, but we do sometimes, don't we? So let God be God, and we can't change anything by debating with God. He says in verse 10, he says, and he cannot, and he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. 
Since there are many things that increase vanity, how is man the better? So looking at your sovereignly given personality and body and job and family that you were born into, all the things you couldn't control that are yours because of God's sovereignty, uh, you can't argue with God about it. There was a play decades ago, I think, on Broadway. It was called uh, Your Arms Too Short to Box with God. But yet some of us want to do that, don't we? We want to argue with them. Lord, why was I born in this family? Why, is that, why was I born with this hair or with this body or with this? Why did you give me this job and so forth? We can't contend with the Almighty. Um, as long as we fight the hand of God, we can't learn the lessons that he's trying to teach us. And so we have to learn to submit to his authority to enjoy life. We are not sovereign. We have to let God be God. And we have to roll with it. That's life under the sun. Learning to live out the life that he has ordained or designed for us and the circumstances that he has designed for us. Yes, he gives us free will, but our free will operates within the, the bounds of his sovereign will. Even the choices that we make, God knows ahead of time. And he works it all together for good. That's the wonderful promise of Scripture. So what is good? That's the big question here. What is good? And, and he raises that issue in, in verse 12. For who knows what is good for man in life? What a question that is. You say, oh, I know what's good. More money is good. Is it really? Not if it seduces you like we talked about last hour from chapter 5. Let's go back to the question. Who knows what is good for man in life? All the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow, which is something that goes, our life goes quickly. Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? Who knows what is good? Now, to know what is good and bad in life, we need to know the future because we need to know the outcome of something. If something is good, it's only good if it's the future proves it to be good, right? So... Being able to pronounce something good means that we have the ability to tell the future, but we don't. We don't know what's going to happen in this life under the sun. So how can we know when something is good? We really can't know good unless we have the mind of God. Good and bad, what is good and bad for us, is all hidden in the mind of God. And it will be revealed in the future to us as to whether it was truly good or bad. A man was telling his friend about an experience he had. He said, I was in a small airplane, and the airplane malfunctioned, and the pilot says, we're going to crash. And his friend says, oh, that's bad. And the man said, no, I had a parachute on. And his friend said, oh, that's good. And the man said, but when I jumped, the parachute failed to open properly. And the man said, oh, that's bad. And the man said, no, because right below me was this giant haystack in the middle of a field. And the man said, oh, that's good. And the guy said, no, not really, because there was a pitchfork sticking out of the hay, the hay, and so on and so forth. So what is good? Only the future will tell us. But God is good. But doesn't that tell us, instead of looking at our circumstances and trying to evaluate what's good and bad for us, to look to our God and trust him with our future and to lead us into what is truly good and truly of his will? If only I could marry her or him, 
Life would be good. And then a few years later, they step before a judge in divorce court. What is good? I love this little, little ditty here. Two teardrops were floating down the river of life. One said to the other, who are you? I'm the teardrop from a girl who loved a man and lost him. Who are you? I'm a teardrop from the girl who got him. Think about that, single people. <laughs> we cry over things that we can't have, but if we had them, we might cry twice as much. Let God decide what's good. Let's just trust God. I think that's what the wisdom that Solomon is trying to share with us here. Let God be God. I think I said this in, when we went through chapter 1, but in, in chapter 1, when he's pondering the questions of life and not understanding things, uh, I love the quote from C.S. Lewis that kind of sums it up for me. C.S. Lewis said the first thing that we'll all say when we get to heaven is, of course, of course. And that means that we've, we're trusting God and leaving it with him, and it all did work out for good. We submit to his authority, come to terms with it, accept life on, on the terms that he's given to us, and we accept his will by faith. That's the answer that the, the Solomon is hinting at, but not really coming straight out and saying until the very end of the book. So if we let God be God, we won't fight with him. And God is holding, God's got our back. He's holding the rope for us. Uh, we were talking about rock climbing last night, and, and rock climbing, you use a, a, a belay, right? You call him a belayer? Is that what you call him? The person who, if you're going to go up there and then be in danger of falling, but you always have a rope attached to you, and then the person on the ground is the belayer, and he holds the rope so that if you slip, he just tightens the rope and it stops you. Uh, I've done rappelling off of cliffs outdoors, and uh, it's good to know that there's somebody's got my back, somebody's got the rope. God has the rope for us. He's got our back so that we can go backwards off a cliff. That's a scary thing to do. Go backwards off a cliff and trust in somebody else and try to enjoy the ride along the way. And that's kind of how we have to live life. We take the risks, we take the steps, we go on, we go forward, but God, we have to trust that God has our backs and we'll put things together, and he won't let us be destroyed. He won't let us fall completely. So what do you do if you don't understand life? You can be miserable because of your circumstances, or you can just trust God with the station where you are in life. The things that you have, the people around you, your health, your body, whatever it is that is causing you unhappiness, trust God. Don't say it's bad. It may not be bad. Like the little boy who, in a village who broke his leg, and the village says, oh, that's terrible, until the, until the, the army came through and drafted all the young men except for that boy who had a broken leg. Well, was it bad? Trust God with your situations in life. How do we find contentment and happiness in our present situation? Well, you find the one who fills every desire, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Let God be the fulfillment of our desires. And we know God through Jesus Christ, his son, whom he has sent to be our savior. And he has made wonderful promises to us. 
like nothing, no one can separate us from the love of God, Romans 8. Or, or Hebrews 13, 5, uh, Jesus said, I am with you always. I will, I will never leave you. I'm with you always. What wonderful promises to a God who gives every, fills every truly important spiritual desire through his son, Jesus Christ. He can take the misery of a troubled heart, an aching heart, the anger, uh, the brokenness, the confusion that you might experience, the disillusionment that you might have experienced in life, and make you alive in him, in Jesus Christ. Have you found that to be true going through a difficult period in life? That the more you thought about your circumstances, the more miserable you felt, the more you thought about Jesus Christ and your future, the better you felt. My friends, we have a wonderful future, guaranteed, hidden in the vault of heaven, waiting for us, a place that Jesus has prepared for all those who know him, who have come to him as Savior, the one who died on the cross for our sins as the Son of God, paid that price for us and then rose from the dead, who lives eternally so that he can make a promise and keep a promise that whoever believes in him has everlasting life. And so when we place our faith in Jesus Christ instead of in our own works, we have all of this guaranteed future. And we have the assurance that no matter what happens to us in this world today, it is for our good. And God works all things together for good to those who love him. If you're here today feeling miserable, I'd like to ask you to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to be the fulfillment of your deepest desires and to trust God with your difficult circumstances to, that might be causing your misery and trust that there's something ultimately good in that if you're de determined to love and serve God. And if you're here today without the assurance of that eternal life, then today the invitation is for you to believe in Jesus Christ as the Savior from your sin that would otherwise condemn us to an eternity without him. By simply placing your faith in Jesus Christ and receiving the free gift of eternal life from him instead of trusting in your own efforts and trying to be good or reform your life or some rituals, believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and you'll find the ultimate fulfillment of your desires and the ultimate good in life and nothing but good in the future. And so, Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus that puts the pieces together for us. Solomon doesn't talk about him, but he leads us to him by looking at the futility of life around us. Lord, we all want to be happy. We all, don't want, to, we all want to feel fulfilled, but life can be difficult for some of us, especially in these days. And uh, we, we, uh, we pray that anybody living in any uncertainty and misery today would reach out to the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior or as Lord as necessary and, uh, and trust him, and not only in this life, but in, in the joy of the future. Thank you for the opportunity to be here today and to share your word together. And we trust you'd seal it in our hearts and help us to think and live it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.